Good morning. Um, I'm not the regular preaching pastor, not even one of the two regular preaching pastors here. My name is Paul Verhoof. I'm a little bit on the edge of, uh, you know, do I, am I going to lose my voice? So if it goes halfway through, Carrie's right here. She can pick it up. I've got some really confusing notes. I'm sure it'll all come together. Anyway, it's good to be with you. Um, you may have noticed if you've been here the last couple of weeks that Pastor Harrison and Pastor Adrian have started a new sermon series in Proverbs on wisdom and that we're taking a time out because I'm here and I don't follow rules very well. Um, but you may also notice that Philippians begins with a P and so it's similar. All right. Um, my hope today more than anything else would be to give us an opportunity on this Sunday morning to pull back the curtain and know and see that God is real and God is alive and God is at work among us and in us and through us. May it be. We haven't been in Philippians for the past bit because we've been in uh, Proverbs instead. Um, thank you to Hans for reading from Philippians 4. If you've if you know this book, it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. And he seems to come across a few things throughout the book, and they all showed up in those first three verses we read together, um, or that Hans read for us. There's these three things that seem to come up, and they, they show up in the, at the beginning in Philippians 1, verse 27, 2, when Paul writes, I know that you will stand firm in one spirit, contending together for the gospel. And then he goes on, chapter 2, to talk about being in one spirit. And it, it kind of dovetails with Pastor Harrison's sermon last week because he talks about humility. How do we be one? Well, we need to be humble together. And then he talks about standing firm in chapter 3. And all through it, by standing firm and standing together, Paul seems to say, this is how you contend for the gospel in Philippi, in your community. In our case, maybe in Calgary. So that's the background to Philippians, which you may know. Um, interesting in our, in our passage that we read today, the very beginning of it, we get into this. If you can just imagine with me that Paul is having this letter read to a group of people that's all in the same room. And by the time you get three quarters of the way through the sermon, all of a sudden, and I'll, I'll just pick on a couple people, we'll say over here and over here, um, all of a sudden, they're reading out loud the great things that Paul's suggesting they do. And then all of a sudden, Euodia and Syntyche get named in the letter, right? As it's just being read to the community. Well, I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with you, Syntyche. Please agree with each other. <laughs> I would imagine a couple faces in the group got read fairly quickly. Um, and that whatever tension was exhibited in these two people, pretty much everybody else in the congregation probably knew. And they probably weren't sitting together. They might have been sitting on opposite sides of the church or in that house. And Paul just says, look, please figure out how to agree with each other. And then he asks his, I think Hans read it as a loyal yoke fellow, right, to kind of help out. Can you please help out? Because... Not only is the division complicated within the large church, but the division or the complications were exhibited in the church itself. 
one Paul knew a lot about the division in the larger church, right? He's right now, while he's writing that letter, he's in prison in Rome. And there's other pastors in Rome who are talking about Paul as if he has nothing good to say. And they're tearing down his name. And he says, in Philippians elsewhere, he says, well, I guess as long as Christ is preached, that's okay. Because for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. That's what matters. And then in Philippi itself, the church had to stand firm because there were these people saying, you actually all need to be circumcised in order to be followers of Jesus. That's not what Paul said. And so there's this collision happening where Paul is, where he's in prison, outside the prison in Philippi. There's division happening all around the church and even within the church. That's the setting for what Paul goes on to say. And so you imagine, you can imagine uh, Euodia and Syntyche's faces turning red and maybe the whole congregation kind of just looking and being, how is this going to go? And then Paul comes with this one idea. What's his solution besides asking the loyal yoke fellow to help out? He says, okay, so we've talked about this division and now this is the way forward. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now for, for those of us who maybe haven't read this letter to the church in Philippi lately, we may go, rejoice? That came out of nowhere. We're talking about divisions, people not getting along. And Paul says, rejoice? But actually, it's like the 15th or 16th time he said rejoice in the letter. It comes up 16 times in the letter, eight times Paul talks about, I rejoice in you. And eight times he talks about, you need to rejoice, or I invite you to rejoice in this other thing. So we might need to ask, what does it mean to rejoice? My one little thing I would think about rejoicing is that it has an enduring character of gladness. And I say enduring character because I watched a lot of sports over the weekend. And I see gladness come and go really quickly. Right? You have an amazing volleyball block and the entire team on your side, yes, wow, and on the other side, oh, right? Or you win the game and you move on to the next one and then you lose the game. And you're, so the, the enduring character of gladness was not really present in the gyms I was in on Friday night and on Saturday all day. And you might have experiences of that too the enduring character of having popcorn at a movie at home until you leave it in too long and the entire house smells of burnt popcorn, right? Maybe there's an enduring character of being known in a community and you walk in and you feel loved and seen and known, appreciated until Euodia walks in and all of a sudden things get a little sticky, right? There's lots of things that seem to be good one day and not good the other. That is not what Paul is inviting us to think about here. And that's why he doesn't say, rejoice in your reputation, or rejoice in the last meal you had that was so great, or rejoice in your great um, defeats and the great ways that you have performed. He doesn't say that. He says, rejoice in something that's way more enduring than that. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice 
in the Lord. Who is this Lord? Who is this Lord? It seems like Paul would be saying it's not about feeling good, and now to tie it into one of Adrian's messages from two weeks ago, it might be about feeling God or maybe fearing God. Fearing God is the source of wisdom, right? Fearing God. It might be about being impressed by God. Who is this Lord? Be impressed by this God. Because this is the God who knows us and loves us and rescues us. One of the other chapters in the Bible uh, that has a lot of the language of rejoicing is Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling three stories. The first story, there were a hundred sheep and one gets lost and the shepherd goes out and finds the sheep and puts the sheep on his shoulders and he comes back and he says to everybody around him, rejoice with me because the lost has been found. And then Jesus tells a second story about a lady who has 10 coins and, and one of them goes missing. And so the lady digs through and, and clears out and looks all around in all the nooks and crannies of her house until she finds that 10th coin. And she invites all of her friends and neighbors over and says, rejoice with me because the lost has been found. And then the third story in Luke chapter 15, where there's two sons. And the younger son says to the father, just give me my inheritance like you're dead. And I'm going to go take it and I'm going away. And so then that younger son takes half the money, goes away, and spends it wildly. And we maybe know some of that story. Things start to go a little bit rough. And that son starts to wonder if he needs to come back home. And the whole time... The father standing there, peering out, looking and waiting. Maybe, maybe, maybe my lost son will come home. And when finally, when finally that father sees in the distance, I think that's my son. What does the father do? Father picks up his robes and he just starts running. I'm going to put those down now. That feels awkward. I'm sure it did to the father too. And he starts running. And he runs right up to his son. And it says in Luke 15, and he wraps his arms around that son and kisses him. Rejoice, because this lost son of mine has been found. It says, the one who is dead has been made alive. Our invitation is to rejoice in the Lord because we are those lost sheep lost coin, lost son, who's been embraced by our father when we've come home. So we rejoice because we were once lost and we are now found. We get to rejoice because we were once blind and now we can see. We were once walking in darkness and now we get to walk in the Lord's glorious light, it says. So rejoice in the Lord, always. And we might wonder, like, but how always is always? Well, as a reminder, right, Paul's writing this letter when he's in prison, when everybody around him is kind of 
trashing him and oppressing him. He's writing it to a church that has inner tension and also external tension because people are telling all these men, you need to be circumcised, and they're, cha- they're preaching a new gospel or a different gospel. And so it's to those people that Paul says, you can rejoice in the Lord always, just like I am while I'm in prison and I'm being trashed by people all around me. Jesus, in one of his uh, Beatitudes, says it like this, even when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil about you, even then rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. We probably know some of these stories of people who surprise us by their joy. I'll just tell one. You can tell each other lots over coffee after our meeting because you don't pass go to get coffee until after the meeting. Is what I heard. The one story that I would pass on is from another pastor uh, who went in the late 1970s to South Africa to a black township where there was apartheid. And he walked into this town and he found this black Christian community singing songs of joy. And he says when he walked in there that he asked everybody, how is it possible that you can do this? I know your sufferings. I know the oppressions that you're enduring. And to the person in that community, they said this. We rejoice because we trust in God. God is the one who sets us free, and we actually have nobody else who's going to help us with that. Just God himself. And yet God is with us. So we sing songs of joy. We find joy in some surprising places. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. And let your gentleness be evident to all. You don't have to fight the battles. You don't have to try to be hostile to win something because the battle is already won in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't have to try to manipulate or use power to control situations around you because God is in control. It is ours to be faithful and to follow. And so let your gentleness be evident to all. And it was clearly in Paul's case to the soldiers around him, to those in Caesar's house who at the beginning of the letter, he says, receive the greetings from those in Caesar's house who also worship the Lord with me. He was probably gentle to those who were degrading his name, to those who were teaching about circumcision right outside the door of the church in Philippi. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So why would we do that? Why would we rejoice? Why would we let our gentleness be evident to all? And this is where Paul just drops a statement, doesn't make a command, doesn't say you should do this. He just says, rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. I'm sure the people uh, of the Jewish community had lots of stories about the Lord's nearness that they could access. They would talk about being slaves in Egypt and how the Lord came near and set them free. They might talk about how when they were getting ready to enter into this promised land full of, of many people, that the Lord came near to them as they went into the land. 
Maybe they would talk about how even when they were disobedient and God kicked them out of the land, still the Lord was near and came to them and brought a remnant back. They might have those stories. We have a a much more beautiful story than that. We have the story of a God who so loved the world that he said, let me come near by sending my son. Let my son put on flesh and blood and join you in this created world. Let my son take on all the burdens that you carry and bring them all to the cross. Let my son join you in a way that he dies and let my son then join you in life again. This is the story of Jesus. That's how near God is to us. The Lord is near. This is um, how Paul in a different letter talks about that. How close is the Lord? Well, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not trouble, not hardship, not persecution, not famine or nakedness or danger or the sword. For I am convinced, he writes, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is near. Now, if I wasn't sick, maybe I would help with this sermon illustration, but I'm not doing so great. So I'm going to invite married couples, if you're willing, to help me with the sermon illustration. It's going to get awkward for some of us. But what I'd like you to do if you are here and you're willing to stand up with your married partner and give them a hug. And then I'm going to read that same verse while you're hugging. Anyone willing to do this? Yeah. So give each other a hug. Linger in the hug for a while and let me read how um, Eugene Peterson translates that passage. Absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way Jesus, our Lord, has embraced us. Later, Paul says, you want to see what God's love for his people looks like? Look at married couples. Look at them, and you will see how much I love my people. Thank you for that illustration. Nothing gets between us and the love of Jesus because of the way he embraces us, the way he wraps his arms around us and kisses us when we come home. Thank you. Thank you all for doing that. It was way better than just having one couple, right? Or just two, Euodia and Syntyche, whatever it might be. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is that near, as near as a husband and a wife are when they're hugging each other. Can we imagine that? I think if we do, we might make more sense of where Paul goes next. The Lord is so near. Well, because the Lord is near, don't be anxious about anything. Because you can take, the Lord is so near, you can take whatever you are carrying with you and just talk to the Lord about it. So bring it before him in prayer and petition. He's right there. 
We don't have to wait for a certain day. We don't have to pray in a certain way. We don't have to go to a sacred space. The Lord is so near, we can just talk to God. And if you don't have any words to say, in another letter, Paul says the Spirit is so near that even if you don't know what to pray, the Spirit in you will groan on your behalf. The Lord is so near. The Lord is so near, so pray anytime and always. The Lord is so near that I wonder if you might see and be able to reflect on whatever is pure. Sorry, I should start with the beginning, right? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Paul writes, think on those things. So it's not that it's just the stuff that happens on Sunday morning at River Park Church that we're supposed to think about. But whatever is true, get in closer because the Spirit of God is, at, is alive and maybe working even there. We have this phrase we sometimes use in this Christian Reformed Church tradition. It won't be familiar to all of us, to all of us. But it says, all truth is God's truth. And so wherever you find something that is true, the Lord is present in that. I wonder, why do we not have all the rest of the phrases, right? All truth is God's truth. Why don't we have a phrase, whatever is noble is God's nobility. Whatever is right is God's righteousness. Whatever is pure is God's holiness. Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, this is God at work right next to you. The Lord is so near. And finally, Paul says, the Lord is so near that I want you to act out of this good news in the world around you. So whatever you see me doing that's working well, you do it too wherever you are, he writes. So that the Lord will be near with you. But maybe the Lord will also be so near with your neighbor through you, being the body of Christ out in the world. So that the Lord is near to your neighbor too. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, so pray. And whatever is beautiful, whatever is lovely, lean into those things. And as you go out in the world, live in a way that honors and, and that lives out of the Lord's nearness to you so that others might experience it. And let the peace of God that transcends all understanding wrap you up. The peace of God. Final illustration. There's a story I heard. I have no idea how true it is. Pastors tell all sorts of weird stories, right? But there is this speaker, this um, entertainer on a stage speaking in front of a crowd. And he said, I've got another one for you. And he had memorized a beloved Psalm of David, Psalm 23. And so to the crowd, 
with charisma, with energy, with whatever, very good facial expressions. He spoke Psalm 23, and it says the crowd applauded. Well done, well done. And then an, I'm going to just pick on you, Cor. And then an old man. I hope that's okay. Yeah, okay, never mind. A young but maybe with gray-haired man came from the crowd and said, do you think I could share those same words again? And the young man, the entertainer, was like, how would I be threatened by this old man? I just got this thunderous applause. So the old man comes up on the stage, and he just starts saying the words of Psalm 23 again. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not be in want. Moving on, even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, still, you are with me. He goes on. He finishes the psalm, and there's no applause. There's actually no noise. The crowd is in a hushed. And the only thing you hear is people starting to walk away, walking past the old man and just saying, thank you. I needed that. Thank you. So the young entertainer, the old man, are the only ones left. The young entertainer looks at the old man and says, we said the exact same thing. Why are there such different responses? The old man just says, you knew the words. I know the shepherd. It makes all the difference. So rejoice in the Lord always. Because the Lord is near. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Join me in prayer. May it be, God, not that you are near because we trust you are, but may it be that we are given eyes to see and ears to hear how close you are to us. May it be that we know deep in our heart that nothing can separate us from the love of God that we see in Christ Jesus our Lord because of the way you Embrace us. May it be by your spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.